Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Mark Tursik, former president and CEO of the Nature Conservancy and a member of RFF's board of directors. I'll talk with Mark about his current work advising private companies on how to take more ambitious steps to address environmental problems, particularly climate change. We'll discuss some examples of what companies are doing, why they're doing it, and how a skeptical public can evaluate the veracity of corporate climate commitments. Stay with us. Okay, Mark Tersek, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thank you, Daniel. It's fun to be here, and thanks to Elizabeth, too, your great producer. Yeah, we should get Elizabeth's voice on the show sometime soon. But uh, but for now, let's talk about you, Mark. And um, uh, I'd like to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests on the show, which is, uh, what got you interested in working on environmental issues? Thanks for asking. You know, I was kind of a late-in-life uh, convert to the environmental world. I grew up in the city of Cleveland and spent most of my life in urban environments. The same is true of my wife, Amy. And so although we were outdoors a lot, we we didn't really pay that much attention to nature. But as parents, we kind of thought that was a a little bit of a deficit. So we started making efforts with our kids to um, get more engaged in the outdoors. And we started small with little day trips in uh, Westchester, New York. And then we got increasingly ambitious. I remember when my kids were still young, we had a really exciting kind of adventure in Costa Rica. Hmm. And uh, and I'm kind of a geeky guy, my wife too, so we started reading uh, environmental books as we did that. And then at the same time, back then, I was an investment banker on Wall Street and a banker who thought that business could be a force for good. And so those interests all came together. Uh, I became very concerned about environmental challenges like climate change. And mostly that arose because, as noted, I was a parent. And then I became very interested in business as a, a, a potential a force for good in addressing those challenges. And near the end of my career at Goldman Sachs, I worked there for 24 years. And mostly I was a mainstream investment banker. Um, but late in my career, um, in 2005, Hank Paulson asked me to start the firm's first environmental effort. And so those interests came together. And ever since then, I've been focused full-time on environmental uh, problem solving. But by the way, the one reason I like my own little example is I think there is probably an inner environmentalist in everyone. Mm. And so we environmentalists, we just have to be clever in awakening that in more people so we can grow support for our cause. Yeah, that's great. I, I love that idea of the inner environmentalist. And, you know, these days, the, I know that's something you're particularly interested in, and you are kind of actively trying to draw some of that out of folks. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what you are up to these days, the role that you're trying to play, particularly when it comes to enhancing private sector action uh, with regard to environmental problems? Yep. Um, I'm a full-time environmentalist focused on environmental problem solving at scale. And what I'm trying to do specifically is to advise companies, investment funds, and environmental NGOs on private sector-oriented environmental problem-solving in a way that makes business sense. So that's my main activity. I also now publish a newsletter on that same topic called The Instigator. When I do that, um, I draw on my own personal experience. For 11 years, until June 2008, I was the CEO of the Nature Conservancy, 
Uh, the Nature Conservancy is a superb, huge global environmental NGO. It was a real joy and honor for me to be the leader for those 11 years. And of course, I learned a lot. And before that, as I mentioned, I was an investment banker on Wall Street. So for 24 years, I worked with global companies and investment funds. So I try to draw on those two experiences to um, promote and um, you know champion private sector-led environmental problem solving. I'm mm-hmm. not saying that's the only way to solve these environmental problems. There are a whole, we should be open to all approaches, but I do think it's one uh, very effective opportunity to accelerate progress right now. That's great. So one of the initial uh, issues that often comes up when when I speak with people about private sector climate action is this concern uh, that there could be some amount of greenwashing going on with some private sector announcements. And this has really been in the news lately. Over the last few weeks and months, I'm sure our listeners will be aware of some of these major announcements coming from companies as large as Walmart or Microsoft or even Delta Airlines and uh, even oil companies like BP. Um, so when you see a company's climate announcement, right, if you're sort of a layperson or, or an interested observer, um, how can a sort of skeptical public evaluate whether that company's commitment uh, is really genuine if they're really putting their money where their mouth yeah. is? It's a really good question, and it's right for everyone to have a kind of skeptical point of view, I think. I'm not naive or Pollyannish. I'm not saying that business, you know, always does the right thing, etc., But I think we can be pretty encouraged that greenwashing is going to pretty much become obsolete soon. In this very transparent world, it's very difficult for someone to pull that off. Um, You can't fool people very easily anymore in this transparent world. And more importantly, companies are understanding, the leaders are certainly understanding, that it's best to be very transparent, not to pretend you have all the answers, and to kind of welcome input. And I think the leaders are really setting the ground rules for how this is going to happen. So that's not to say there aren't bad actors out there. There are, and they should be campaigned against or criticized. And and by the way, they are. But if you think about a leader like Microsoft recently has made a series of really uh, impressive announcements about their own climate commitments, and then what you can do, anyone can do this, skeptical or not, is is just you know Google Microsoft and read their announcements, and you'll see a remarkable degree of transparency, um, openness to criticism by outsiders, uh, engagement with environmental NGOs, and and by the way, these are things that I try to champion in my advisory work. Um, be open, be transparent, partner with uh, people in the environmental community. Don't pretend you have all the answers. That's the pathway to move forward. And I think most companies that you're reading about in the paper now are doing that. And um, and as I say, um, greenwashing is a pretty silly strategy for a company to try to pull off today because it, it will be very difficult to fool anybody today. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on some of those new elements of transparency that are available today that maybe weren't before and how that kind of enables the public to have more insight into these questions. A really cool development, I think, is in the area of so-called nature-based climate solutions. So back when I was running the Nature Conservancy, I even wrote a book about this, uh, Nature's Fortune. Um, The argument was we should invest more in nature. We need more resources to protect nature. So that was our starting point. We were trying to think, how can we get society to understand that nature is such a valuable asset that does all these wonderful things for us? It, you know, it's a source of our food, our clean water, uh, clean air to breathe, etc. We don't invest enough in this 
asset that well, we can think of it as an asset, natural capital or green infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And so one of our strategies is let's let's accelerate or champion the opportunity to invest in restoration of nature with the goal of sequestering carbon or drawing carbon out of the atmosphere. Because we know that uh, ecosystems can do that. Forests are the most obvious example, but you know, mangroves, wetlands, grasslands, they can all do that. So NGOs have been trying to do that and have made good progress. But um, but this is a complicated area. Um, I don't wanna kid anybody there. Getting this quite right isn't easy. And so what has really been great recently is, is a number of private sector companies have said in connection with their own climate commitments. First and foremost, they say, we're gonna do everything we can to reduce our own emissions. And that of course is the right starting point. There's no question about that. We need to reduce emissions. But there are constraints, especially in the near term sometimes, in in how far they can go. And they want to reduce their emissions beyond that. And so then carbon offsets or these nature-based solutions become uh, interesting to them. So uh, Stripe is a, is a technology company, and I'd, I'd encourage people to just Google them. And they've made some commitments to purchase offsets. They acknowledge that these offsets are controversial. There's some disagreement about they, how they work. And so Stripe said, we're going to be transparent about everything. So the various providers of offsets had to agree if they wanted to um, pitch their offset to Stripe that everything would be made public. So Stripe published uh, a document um, prepared by an NGO uh, carbon plan, which analyzes the pros and cons um, A to Z of each of the submissions, not just the ones that Stripe picked, but even the ones that they passed on. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Shopify, another technology company, has just done something like that. So um, my take on this is, first, really good to see uh, the private sector collaborate with the environmental community this way. You know, if these offsets are going to work, they need to be credible and real. This is a way to do it. Really excellent transparency. And, um, you know, personally, I think nature-based climate solutions can be an enormously important climate solution. But again, there, there, are, there are challenges here. And so this, this fully transparent, inclusive uh, approach, I think, is the best way forward. Uh, it really encourages me. Right. That's great. So private companies have been making environmental commitments for a long time uh, and on all sorts of issues. Do you have the sense that what we're seeing today when it comes from some of the companies you just mentioned or perhaps others, are we seeing an evolution of those commitments or is this more of a step change to something uh, you know, significantly uh, more impactful? I think it's a step change. Now, I'm a I'm a perpetual optimist, and I thought this before, and I, I was a little bit wrong. Um, I've been trying to do this kind of work for 15 years, but I think it's a step change, and we can talk about specific examples, but I think a couple of things are going on. Finally, and you know we're way behind schedule, and it's belated, but anyway, better late than never. Finally, uh, humankind, by and large, even in, even in the U.S., seems to be understanding that addressing these environmental challenges now is really important. So companies are feeling the heat from their stakeholders. By stakeholders, I mean their customers, their employees, uh, community members where they operate, and of course, their shareholders. So if you're a CEO of a company uh, and you're being thoughtful, mindful about 
the different constituents that are important to you, you're hearing from them, hey, we need to do something about these environmental challenges. Maybe more importantly, I think business leaders are thinking, boy, things like climate change, uh, if we thought COVID was bad, uh, COVID obviously is tragic. It's a health and humanitarian catastrophe, and I don't want to be lighthearted about it at all. But eventually, COVID will be addressed um, one way or another. And again, I don't mean to be you know, to minimize the, the challenges mm-hmm. or the suffering. But climate yeah. change is sort of the same kind of thing, right? Uh, scientists have been telling us there's these huge risks out there. Um, by and large, society hasn't done enough about it. But as we begin to experience the really dangerous impacts of climate change, humanitarian impacts, health impacts, but business and economic impacts too. In the case of climate change, there's no likely turnaround. It's just going to get worse and worse until we uh, reduce emissions hugely and take carbon out of the atmosphere. And so I think business leaders are understanding we better do something about this uh, just to protect our business position, you know, the economy we operate in. But then even more important than that, Um, I think business leaders are understanding this is a good way to strengthen the value of our overall business by addressing these kinds of challenges in bold ways that make sense to for our company in a way that we can make a real impact. And again, that's that's the focus of my work. So I think it is a step change. It's a reason for real encouragement. It's not a panacea. Um, We have a long way to go. I think the most important thing for the audience to hear is whoever you are, whether you're a business leader, an investor, an employee, a customer, stakeholders today are really heard. So you can speak up, pound the table and push the companies that you have some connection to to take full advantage of this opportunity. Those are great points. And your uh, analogy, your COVID climate analogy actually makes me think of a wonderful cartoon that I saw in The Economist a couple of months ago. Uh, It was of a boxing ring. Uh, And there's a boxing match going on between the earth and COVID. Uh, So they're slugging it out. But right outside the boxing ring, waiting for the next round, basically, you know, the the headline event is climate change Uh, and climate change in the form of a big sun kind of waiting until the earth gets through COVID uh, so that, you know, it can take on this even greater challenge. Yeah, um, it reminds me that's a great. That sounds like a great cartoon, very apt. It reminds me of um, a a recent book published by uh, Professor Rebecca Henderson from Harvard Business School, Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. And Professor Henderson's views are aligned with mine, so I'm biased. But sometimes when I talk about this stuff, um, my evidence is more anecdotal, things I've seen firsthand. And people just say, ah, it sounds too good to be true. Rebecca makes the same points, but with the rigor of an academic. And she is extremely emphatic on the point that, you know, business is really screwed if they don't get their act together and start addressing the climate challenge. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about that? So what are, you know, some of the financial interests that might be at stake that would encourage a company to really push on climate leadership? And maybe if, you know, example comes to mind, that would be really helpful. Yeah, well, there's, there's two ways to think about it. I mean, one would be to say, well, just imagine uh, the climate catastrophe getting worse and worse. So uh, it's it would be too hot to work outdoors in a healthy fashion in, in many parts of this country, in the U.S., let alone all around the world. Uh, we would have uh, increased storms and fires, as we are already experiencing, sea level rise and all the economic harm that goes with that, uh, refugee crises, et cetera, et cetera. But, but, but another way, we can flip it around, too, and just say to a business leaders, hey, what's in it for you if you address the climate challenge and um, 
what I would say is let's just think about, you know, how it is you manage your enterprise. So if you find a good strategy to address the climate challenge, I think more, more often than not, that will enhance your top line, more revenue. And that would be because you either have some new business strategy that leads to new business opportunities, or you're just more popular with your customers and, and you, get, you attract more customers. Or if we take turn from the top line, addressing the climate challenge probably also will reduce your costs. And many companies have demonstrated by trying to reduce their carbon emissions, for example, uh, one of the first things they do is, is focus on energy efficiency and immediately costs fall. Or if you imagine you're a business leader today in this complex society with all these challenges, uh, inspiring your employees or being viewed as an attractive place to work or inspiring your customers. Well, um, if you look at like Fortune Magazine's best places to work uh, survey every year, people want to work for companies whose values align with theirs. Um, so you can inspire your constituents. Or we can think about risk management. Companies worry about this, of course. Hmm, what could go wrong going forward? Where might we run into regulatory challenges? Or where might communities where we operate push back? Well, environmental misdeeds could be um, a source of that kind of pushback. A active environmental program can probably reduce such risk. Finally, uh, we can think about capital spending. Um, you know, lots of Wall Street analysts now complain or criticize companies who have stranded assets. They made very long-term capital investments that don't look like they make much sense now in an era of a changing climate. So probably for a company that has a very uh, thoughtful, um, you know, thoughtful approach to addressing climate, it probably means you'll be wiser about longer-term capital spending. So more revenue, reduced costs, reduced risks, inspired constituents like customers and shareholders, smarter capital spending. These are pretty good ways to improve your overall business standing. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And you've touched on this just a moment ago, but can you talk a little bit more about some of the ways in which employees and customers, folks in the supply chain and others uh, either do have influence on the decisions that uh, management makes or maybe ways that they could have more influence on the types of decisions that, um, that the folks in the quarters we make? Think of Amazon, for example. Um, you might recall, um, I think it was about it was less than a year ago, maybe last February or so, there was there was um, reports in the press that there was going to be another climate walkout. And employees at Amazon, uh, unhappy with their climate commitments, were threatening a walkout. Before that walkout occurred, Amazon unveiled some pretty ambitious uh, and comprehensive climate commitments. And then, of course, in the meantime, Jeff Bezos announced his Bezos Earth Fund, $100 billion of philanthropy focused on climate. You know, who knows what was going on behind the scenes in all respects, but my bet is that employee activity uh, raised uh, uh, the enthusiasm or the eagerness to address this challenge at Amazon headquarters. Um, companies listen to their employees. Or if you talk to CEOs, especially CEOs in, in these more difficult sectors, like the mining sector, they admit it's hard for them to go to campuses and, and recruit the, quote, best and the brightest. That's what all CEOs right. say they want to do. Uh, so people care about their constituents. Again, though, we can flip it around. We can just say, hey, what can a company do proactively to do something about that? A really cool example that um, I'm not involved with, I only know about it because I've read about it, is 
Intuit, the software company. So Intuit, um, a while back, evidently said, boy, we need to address our climate footprint. We should figure out how to become carbon neutral. But Intuit's a software company. Its carbon footprint is very small. And so uh, evidently, the management team or the people working on this said, gosh, that's, that's too modest of a goal. You know, we're mighty into it. We should do something more important than that. So they came up with this plan they call 50 times 30. 50 refers to 50 times into its carbon footprint, and 30 is by 2030. And what Intuit's planning to do is by the year 2030, work on carbon emission reductions that amount to being 50 times into its own footprint. And the way they're going to do that is help their customers, who are really medium-sized and smaller companies, work with their customers, their employees, and the communities where they operate help them, provide them the tools and the guidance so that they can all reduce their emissions. So I think that's a pretty cool example. One, it's, it will be obviously an important and um, you know, significant climate step, 50 times their footprint. But from a business perspective, I mean, what better way could you think of for Intuit to get closer to their customers, understand their challenges, probably find some new revenue opportunities uh, in connection with all this, or if they want to inspire their employees, a climate-concerned employee would have to appreciate, right, that their company would be helping them with their own emissions reductions. Same with communities. I think it's a really good example, then, of what um, business leaders need to do here, which is there's no, like, simple formula for how you put together a bold, ambitious corporate strategy. You've got to think hard about your own capabilities, uh, the different constituents you touch, um, I, for one, would advocate, make sure it makes business sense, because that way it can be sustainable and important and well-funded. Um, but Intuits is, I think, a good and creative example of how uh, business leaders can do important things. Oh, and I should add, Intuits working with uh, Drawdown on this. Uh, Drawdown Labs, that's a part of a Drawdown that works with companies. And I think that's smart, too. So Intuits saying right off the bat, we're not pretending we have all the answers. We want engagement from the environmental community. Uh, they know things we don't know. That kind of open-minded teamwork approach, I think, is really commendable. Yeah, that's a fascinating example. I hadn't uh, heard about that, but certainly ambitious. Um and, uh, and, and make sense in all the ways you describe. One uh, following question related to that partnership that you just mentioned, it's something that I know you're really interested in, which is the you know, potential for private sector uh, for-profit businesses to work with NGOs to try to create some of those shared goals that they might have and bringing kind of different skill sets and expertise levels to the table. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the opportunities as well as some of the barriers uh, that might exist uh, uh, when it comes to those types of collaborations? Yeah, it's really a great question. So um, I, this first came to my attention <clears throat> back in 2005. I, I mentioned to you that Hank Paulson invited me to lead Goldman's first environmental effort. And back in 2005, that was a kind of novel thing. Um, we had the idea that we were going to pursue environmental objectives, but only in ways that also made business sense. And I said to Hank, why should I be in charge? Like, I don't know as much about the environment as I should. And he said, no, don't worry about that. You're, you're a commercial leader at Goldman Sachs. So we need this to be, we don't want it to look like some overhead or corporate social responsibility thing. We want this to be viewed as, you know, commercial. And, you know, you're smart. Go get the expertise you need. And so I said, hmm, how do I do that? So then I began to reach out to environmental NGOs. That's when I began to get to know NGOs for the first time. 
And I did this with colleagues from Goldman Sachs, and we were kind of blown away by how smart these NGOs were. And I think as well, the NGOs we worked with, they were kind of blown away by how smart the Goldman Sachs people were in terms of our own areas of expertise. And it was one of those one plus one is like worth much more than two kind of situations. Uh, so ever since then, I've been a, um, a, a big believer in this, and it had a lot to do with my decision to then join the NGO world and, and, and the Nature Conservancy in particular. But why doesn't it happen more often? The two sides just don't know one another well enough. I think that's the big, uh, that's the big obstacle. And both sides, both uh, the private sector and the environmental community, in my view, should invest more in getting to know one another better and understanding how to work more productively together. Um, that certainly makes sense if you believe, as I do, that the private sector can be one of the important levers for environmental progress. Uh, there's a lot to be encouraged about. I mean, there are many, many examples of companies doing this and many NGOs that are doing it too. But in fact, I think they're, you know, it's still a, a minority of uh, all the companies out there and, and it's, some, it's an area where we should do much more. The nature-based climate solution example I mentioned earlier is a really good example. If companies try to champion nature-based solutions all by themselves, I don't think they'll have the buy-in or the credibility broadly that we need. And, and why is that? Because, you know, back to my Microsoft example and, and their use of offsets, that's not purely a business um, outcome they're seeking. It's a business and environmental one. And so there's a need for some credibility and buy-in, and I think the environmental community can provide it. But at the same time, the NGOs who work with Microsoft, I think, will better understand the challenges that the business community has in pursuing these, these environmental um, opportunities. So there's just a lot of, um, there's a lot of cross-border learning and collaboration opportunities there. It's something that I would like to see broadly across the environmental community. More collaboration, less confidence that any one party has all of the answers or knows exactly what to do. Yeah, well, certainly toast to that, and um, and I know this is something that you're working on every day. So, um, so you know, of course, we're wishing you luck and spurring some of those Thanks. partnerships to come about. So, let's close it out now with our last question that we ask all of our guests, which is uh, asking you what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack. And I'll start with a TV show that I watched just the other day. It was uh, Axios on HBO. Axios the DC-based uh, uh, journalism, or, or what to call it, website, I guess, uh, news website. So there was a great interview that Amy Harder, who's an energy and environmental reporter there, did with the CEO of BP, Bernard Looney. Um, the episode aired on October 13th, 2020. Uh, and it's all about these topics that we've been talking about, uh, kind of interrogating some of the commitments that BP has made, and they've made very ambitious commitments to reduce um, their emissions, including emissions from the fuels they sell, to net zero by 2050. And so uh, Amy asked a lot of great questions of, uh, of the CEO, and I thought it was a fascinating conversation, so I'd really recommend that. Uh, but how about you, Mark? What's on the top of your stack? Well, thanks, Daniel. By the way, I, I want to see that. Um, I admire Amy. She's a great journalist. And I think Bernard Lumi and BP are really interesting to observe right now. They have a lot of critics. And let's face it, the oil and gas company uh, has a lot to be criticized for looking retrospectively. But I, for one, admire his uh, courage as CEO to try to reinvent his company to be an energy solutions provider. It won't be easy, but um, but but I admire that. And I, I hope environmentalists will resist 
the sometimes knee-jerk uh, reaction to vilify people in, in sectors like that. Right. Um, one book I would mention uh, that I just reread, I read it a long time ago, is called Playing the Enemy uh, by John Carlin. By the way, this then became a movie called Invictus, uh, starring Morgan Freeman. Right. But it's about uh, Mandela. He's released from prison after 27 years. He wins South Africa's first free election. And so he's the leader. And boy, if you wanted to imagine anyone who had reason to be embittered toward the other side, uh, or to be angry, or to be cynical, he sure could uh, reasonably be that way. But no, the movie doesn't really capture this. So the book is, is a far better choice. Mandela says, no, no, I have to, I have to bring this country together somehow. And his own, his own supporters really resist this. They're resentful and, and angry about how they've been treated over all these years of apartheid. Again, who can blame them? But Mandela emphasizes it's time to try to bring our country together. That's the best way forward. Now, the book and the movie are a little bit about how he uses the World Cup rugby championship as the specific opportunity to bring the country together. And again, his his supporters really resist that because the Springboks are like the embodiment of apartheid in their view. But right. he urges his troops, no, no, let's try to bring folks together. Let's see if we can all get on the same page. He also shows that in his interactions with people one by one, even his prison guards he stays in touch with. And I find it really inspiring, the whole story. Uh, if it sounds a little Pollyannish, as I just said that, the book is not Pollyannish. Please read it. The reason I mention it now is I think that's a spirit that the environmental community could use more of. Now, there are bad actors that the environmental community needs to go after. I get that. But I think there's a, a not fully tapped opportunity to, to reach out to folks who are not yet on the same page as environmentalists to grow our political coalition, to find more uh, participants to get engaged with environmental problem solving. You know, if you step back and think about the big picture, like nobody should be against protecting nature or addressing these environmental challenges. And, and somehow, while being vigilant, about going after bad actors and the need for, of course, good regulatory policy, I still think we can do a better job of getting more people on our side and better understanding where they're coming from. And I think the story of Mandela in playing the enemy uh, is kind of an inspiring tale along those lines. Yeah, that's really well said and so timely, right, as we're thinking about ways to bring the country together. Yeah, in that book, you know, you just say, wow, what a divided country. Of course, you would say that about South Africa in the mid-90s. And then you think about uh, here we are in Washington, D.C. in 2020. uh, Yeah, we've got a divided country ourselves, don't we? Don't we? Don't we indeed. But but Mark, you know, the work you're doing is uh, certainly helping to bridge uh, at least some of those gaps. uh, And we really appreciate you coming on the show and telling us about them and helping us learn more about uh, the work that you're doing, as well as the private sector um, actions that are taking place all over the economy. So thanks again for joining us on Resources Radio. Uh, thank you, Daniel. And thanks to all your colleagues at Resources for the Future. You guys are, you, all of you are doing a great job. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support Resources for the Future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. 
Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.